1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. My name is Clayton Gerard. My pronouns are he, him, and today I am here with Dr. Tari Pickens, author of Black Madness, double colon, Mad Blackness. In Black Madness, double colon, Mad Blackness, Tari Elise Pickens rethinks the relationship between blackness and disability, unsettling the common theorization that they are mutually constitutive. Pickens shows how black speculative and science fiction authors, such as Octavia Butler, Nalo Hopkinson, and Tana Narive do craft new worlds that reimagine the intersection of blackness and madness. The theorizations of race and disability that emerge from these works, Pickens demonstrates challenge the paradigms of subjectivity that white supremacy and ableism enforce thereby pointing to the potential for new forms of radical politics. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Pickens. I'll turn it over to you and let you introduce yourself and your work and anything else you might like to talk about.
0: Sure. So my name is Elise Pickens. Um, She, her, hers. Um, I'm currently teaching uh, at Bates College in Maine. I'm a full professor there in the Department of English with an affiliation with the program at Africana. Um, My undergraduate degree is in comparative literature from Princeton University with a certificate in linguistics. And my graduate studies were in comparative literature at the University of California at Los Angeles. My major fields of study are Arab-American literature, African-American literature and disability studies, literary theory and philosophy. Um, I've also had some forays into popular culture. Um, I think you can tell from the style of the book that I'm pretty attentive to words. And so uh, that comes from my background as a poet. Um, And so, yeah, that's that's me.
1: Yeah, thank you for that introduction. And I agree, I can definitely tell some background in poetry with the word choice that you use and the ways that you structure your writing. It's very um, enjoyable to read and also very provocative. So I appreciate that. Mm And um, just to go off of that, I just want to say more broadly, I really appreciate this book that you've written. It's challenged me in many different ways. So thank you for bringing this into the world. Um So to start off, I wanted to ask the question about how this book originated in two different ways. First, I just wanted to ask, how did this book come about for you personally?
0: Well, some of the exigencies of the profession kind of drive the second project, Um, and initially the book was going to be an exploration of Black speculative fiction uh, with an emphasis on disability, and um, I did a presentation at the 2013 Ford Fellows Conference. I'm not a Ford Fellow, so I was pretty honored to be there. Um, And Ken Whisaker, who's uh, an editor at Duke University Press, was there, and um, gave me his card. And so I started thinking, um, kind of about the, the nature of a Duke book. Um, and, uh, the way that I understood it, a Duke book was going to be something similar to Sharon Patricia Holland's, the erotic life of racism, something small, theoretically rigorous, and then also something pretty direct that, that was my understanding of a Duke book that and, um, Christina Sharpe's *Monstrous Intimacies* and also *In the Wake*. So those were those were my models, and as I started thinking about the second project, uh, it morphed into something a little bit more personal. Um, in terms of the the desire to move beyond, I think what I had become uh, known for, which was the discussion of physical disability, and so I wanted to stretch myself intellectually to research. Um, mental disability, cognitive disability, um, and so that's that's where the focus came from. At some point, um, upon receiving readers' reports, I realized the book was just going to be something a little different. It was it was changing. Um, to that end, I think Alice Walker's um, dedication uh, at the end of *The Color Purple*, where she Thanks Everyone for Showing Up became particularly apt. Um, and so, you know, Octavia E. Butler showed up. Nalo Hopkinson showed up. Tananarive Du showed up. Um, Matt Johnson showed up. And with all of their verve, I think, and, and cleverness and, and brilliance, um, they were pressing me, I think. Their works were pressing me to think about the fact that I, as a critic, am doing something radically different. Um, I once did an interview in uh, grad school with Danzi Senna, and I asked her a question, and I remember her saying, well, that's not my question to answer, that's your question. Um, And she was pinpointing the differences, I think, between the critic and the the author, and one that I don't think we often pay attention to. Um, And so thinking about how these authors were as creatives several steps ahead of the academy, I wanted them to take center stage. And so that's where the major thrust of the book comes from, this idea that these are theorists um, and that you kind of don't need much more than Octavia E. Butler to look at Octavia E. Butler, Um, even though uh, she's in conversation with so many different people and they often add to the conversation uh, her work is presents a theory by itself. Um, and so thinking about it that way, thinking about the authors as theorists, and then also I was teaching a theory class to undergraduates. And at some point I said to them, you either take Barbara Christian seriously or you don't. You either believe her or you don't, um, in terms of her argument in Race for Theory, that the theory comes after the uh the literature the theory is is closely wedded to it it's not a kind of toying around with ideas that in their practical implication would be detrimental right so for instance um there's no such thing as the author there's no such thing as subjectivity or personhood as soon as black people and um and uh formally colonized people start asking for their rights or demanding them. Um, so that that political moment crystallizes for me that either you believe Barbara Christian or you don't. Um, and so I had to say to myself, either you believe Barbara Christian or you don't, and ask myself what kinds of conversations did I want to be enmeshed in in the book? And that's I think where the um the impetus to have conversations and not chapters comes from uh looking at other feeling um sort of irritated at other readers reports the second go round, where i was told i think that i don't have a conclusion um i doubled down on that and just said you know there is no way to conclude this in a way that's going to be satisfactory at all it'll force me to say things or to pre- put periods at the end of sentences that are, that are still being written. So that the book kind of comes about as a personal intellectual exploration um, and as a reckoning, I think, with the authors and what they are trying to do in their work. And then also as a response to what critics are, were doing or what I thought they weren't doing. Um, and also, I think as a um, as a exploration of or doubling down on my identity as a poet, um, all of the epigraphs are from Black women's poetry. Um, and that was stuff I was using to write to inspire me to write. Um, and I realized that the, the two projects were kind of coming together. And so the epigraphs really Pushed me to think think through those. Um, also, I'm not sure if folks are still uh, looking at um, maybe those sections of those poems. You know, it takes a certain kind of brilliance to do uh, Harriet Mullen's sleeping with the dictionary, or that sestina that you see from Evie Shockley, um, or Rhonda Coleman's work. Uh, so. Yeah, that's, that's how the book comes about.
1: Nice. Well, thank you for that little overview. I definitely um, can understand a lot of what you're saying and see it translated into the book, specifically how you're talking about artists themselves theorizing in the everyday. And um, I can definitely see what you're talking about when you're talking about the conclusion and the finality that would come with the conclusion and how that doesn't necessarily need to be there as the sentences are still being written. And um, I'd love to get into the topic of the structure of the book a little bit later. Um, So I may just put that on the back burner for a second, but um, for this second part of um, the origin of this book, would you mind talking about how this book came about based on work from various other areas of study um, like critical race studies, African American or Black studies, disability studies, um, comparative literature, and so on. Um, maybe talking about some of the gaps that your work fills, and also some of the questions that it prompts us to think about.
0: Yeah, so I don't, I don't see this question as all that different from the first one. Um, uh, in part because. The personal exploration is always wedded to the political. You can't really deal with physical disability without dealing with uh, mental disability. You can't as a disability studies scholar take yourself seriously if you don't address the kind of sanest habits of mind and body that are prevalent within the academy. Um, Comparative literature I think surfaces in the taking seriously authors in their context Um, which people think of as a kind of structuralist intervention um, and tend to think of Black literature, uh, Black literary studies as particularly structuralist. But um, I'm actually kind of moving a a little bit away from that uh, in the sense that um, rather than understanding myself as finding a system within the text, I think the text presents systems to us, um, or present a distrust of systems to us. So that's those are some of the things that I was influenced by. Uh, I think I'm also you know, very influenced by my work in Arab American literature. Uh, what does it mean to think, say, about Palestinian literature, Palestinian American literature, thinking about a homeland, thinking about being displaced? Um, and also for Arab American literature, what does it mean to deal with the varying degrees of, of whiteness um, and tenuous acceptance. Um, and what does it mean to kind of eschew that altogether and think about uh, people of color as their own reference points, um, which isn't unique to Arab American literature, but did come about uh, in my first project. Um, it's, a, it's a particular, and I'm probably gonna offend a lot of people when I say this, um, but it's a particular junior scholar's purview to think about Lacunae. Um, and it's not that Lacunae don't exist, um, but it is our task as critics to not talk about what's not there as though we found deficiencies in other scholars' work, but that their projects are doing one thing and we've those projects have opened up questions for us that we get to answer. Um Because I think talking about what's missing often leads people to disrespect what is actually there. So I wasn't trying to fill a lacunae. I was trying to do the thing of mapping out a relationship between Blackness and disability studies, or sorry, between race and disability, between Blackness and madness, the kind that I wanted when I was working on Octavia E. Butler for the first time. Um, I wanted a theory, um, and it turns out Butler was giving me a theory. I just kind of wasn't paying attention to it. Um, but I, I, I really, if I, <laughs> if I could do away with one thing, I would ask folks to to stop pitching their projects, um, either in the project or to editors or to to fellowships as filling a gap. Um, you're intervening in a discourse, and so. Um, you want to respect what's there, and you want to think about how those how those prompt questions. Um, you know, because it, most scholars are are trying to do the same. I think talking about it in terms of filling gaps tends to lead to a kind of um, a kind of arrogance of youth, and I feel sort of empowered to say that as a scholar who was particularly young. When I entered the Academy, uh, the first time I was introduced to the concept of being a professor and that there was financial benefit to it. I was a Melon Mays undergraduate fellow and I was 17. So I'm not even legally an adult and I'm kind of already enmeshed in, in some of these spaces. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's a particular arrogance of youth to say we're doing it better just because we're younger and newer, um, and it's, it's not an arrogance that that looks good in terms of the scholarship because it doesn't really respect what's there. So, I mean, I wasn't filling a lacuna, um, or a lacuna. Um, I was going for, I was going after questions that other folks have posed. Namely, what are you going to do now from the artist theorists? Um, but also for those of us who were in the academy working on blackness and disability studies, how do these things, how might these things fit together? That was the question I was trying to answer. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you for speaking to that and um, your thoughtfulness through speaking through that. I really appreciate you sharing that. so my next question does concern the structure of the book, and I feel like it would just be a fascinating conversation to talk through this for hours on end um, because... You structured everything very purposefully and thoughtfully in a way that, um, at least when I was reading it, I just kept going back and being like, oh, this makes so much sense here or like, I'm not quite understanding what's going on. And then it makes me just think more and more about it. Um, So I really appreciate that. And for those that haven't read this book, I wanted to see if you could speak a little bit to that structure and, um, you know, maybe describe a little bit of the construct that you used for this book and some of the reasoning and how that really shapes the interventions you're making.
0: Sure, so the the structure that Clayton is referring to is preface, introduction, and four conversations. Uh, And in the uh, latter half of the fourth conversation, there is a press um, toward a wrap-up but not a conclusion, really, um, not in a traditional sense. So, um, and within the conversations, I take a look at the critical work and where it is opening up a set of questions, where it is revealing itself uh, to itself or revealing itself to others. Um, there's a couple of different influences. Um, the One of... One, they're not in any particular order of importance. One of them is that I teach at a small liberal arts college. Um, I think, you know, when we when we think about the structure of the academy, we often believe that the best thinking is coming out of research one spaces, in part because those folks tend to have more resources, um, and uh, a very big resource, which is time. Um, but coming out of a small liberal arts space. As a scholar here, I'm forced to, in all of my teaching, distill these really complex concepts to undergraduates who are interested but don't have necessarily the background of graduate students. Um, And so I have to come up with particular metaphors and tips and tricks and hacks for understanding the difference between Saussure and Lacan, uh, et cetera. Right. So, one of the things that I tell them. Uh, is that the semester is a sixteen 12 I don't know how many weeks our terms are um probably 16 uh, but it's a 16 week conversation dinner conversation and like many dinner conversations you'll start um, like many do- like many dinner conversations you will start um, one conversation and then return to something in the past or go to something um, that is separate, but then it loops back. It's a kind of uh, consistent give and take. Um, And so thinking of it that way, I was considering what it might mean for my book to reflect that kind of back and forth thinking and what it might also do to have a book that was in an idiom, that I could understand. Um, and, you know, because I think when you distill something in a traditional chapter, you are presenting the thinking as finished as opposed to in progress. Um, and so I wanted to present it slightly in, in progress. Um, the other, one of the other influences is my, uh, one of my best friends in the world uh, Dr. Timothy Lyle, and they often say this is revealing, or they're revealing themselves, um, or, um, or something, uh, something similar. And the idea that a critic reveals themselves, um, or that critical literature reveals itself to have a certain set of questions or be stymied, um, by a certain set of questions. Um, I thought that was f- profound. We often use it to talk about, uh, people. Um, but, <laughs> um, you know, I think it works for critical literature as well. And, you know, I, our conversations are wide ranging. So we're, we're often talking about both. Um, my other, well, one of my other best friends, uh, Dr. Shanna, uh, Green Benjamin, whose book *Half and Shadow* just uh, won the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, um, her book and her work on memory and uh, remembering, uh, sort of Sankofa work, um, going to the past and retrieving it in order to move forward, and her her book is uh, structured with a set of vignettes that flash back to the past and then flash forward, and um, and do do that kind of cinematic work. I was interested in, in how um, memory functions, right? What does it mean also to be, and this is something that she's particularly interested in too, hospitable to a reader um, and, and how do you prepare them, right? And so I think the laying out of critical conversations before looking at the creative writer prepares you to look at the creative writer Um, Because, uh, and this is also something that many friends of mine in the academy and I discuss quite frequently, people like to be lazy about African American literature, um, and tend to think that they can just enter into it and there's no tradition that they're pulling from that, that it's not okay when it's difficult. Um, And it's not students, necessarily, It's, it's the people who ask me what I do while I'm in line in the grocery store. And I say African-American literature and they wonder out loud whether such a thing exists or Arab-American literature and they wonder out loud whether such a thing exists. And, you know, I don't fault them for uh, for their ignorance, but I do think about the fact that for literature by people of color, folks tend to want it to do sociological work rather than creative or theoretical work. And um opening up those texts, not necessarily as a critic, but as a reader, right? Um, as a black reader, um, as a black reader interested in madness. Um, I think that that was crucial to me. I think the other part (laughs) is the nineties, right? I'm, uh, born in the mid eighties, 84, uh, you're the rat. Um, and, (laughs) um, you know, grew up, came of age during the 90s where mad had a multivalenced meaning. Um, and so that pressed me, I think, to think about madness in a Black context that was a little different. Um, yeah, I think that those were the things that influenced the structure. Um, and quite frankly, you know, no small sense of rebellion I had already done a traditional book. Um, The first book was traditional, you know, four chapters, introduction, conclusion. It looked like Windows 95 threw up on the cover of my book until it, you know, got to be in paperback. Um, Yeah, so, like, I I wanted something different.
1: Nice, yes. I definitely appreciate that difference, and I can see some of the rebellion, especially with the lack of conclusion. It's Definitely provocative. So I appreciate that. I appreciate you going through that and talking about like the thoughtfulness in which you approach these other conversations with scholars, and even calling, you know, these sections of your book conversations instead of just chapters. Um, and I think this thoughtfulness shows through on one of your previous answers, where you talk about not seeing your work as filling a gap but also adding to different questions and just continuing to explore and chart territories. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this experience that you have specifically with like speculative fiction writers and um, these more creative thinkers and the creative work that's done in how theory is produced in the everyday. Um, How is this, how do you approach these types of conversations with other scholars and theorists? I think it would be really interesting to hear about that because I haven't really heard another person talk about it in such a way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, um, the, the book is (laughs) it comes out in 2019 and, um, folks are particularly particularly interested in it as it relates to Black Lives Matter um, and so I, I spoke about um, how the kind of lost chapter, the one that I never did um, and actually sort of decided to cut on Victor Laval's The Devil and Silver. Um, I spoke about that at McGill uh, around the time that Atatiana Jefferson was killed. And so a lot of other scholars and, and students were concerned about, you know, how this translates to uh, everyday action um, and what it means to carefully consider this in terms of policy. Now, being someone who's not particularly, um, I, you know, not a political theorist, not a uh, policy analyst, I couldn't answer those questions. Um, but what I could say is that what's missing from the conversation is an attention to uh, what it is like to uh, bring um, bring social workers into the home, say instead of um, instead of the police. Like, will these people be trained, et cetera, et cetera? So, when the defund the police conversations were happening, um, I'm uh, I wasn't against, and I'm not against defunding the police. I'm actually for defunding the police. Um, and I'm also wanting the structures that replace it, say, um, to be attentive to the fact that cognitive disability and mental illness, um, because of the circumstances, will not necessarily appear the same way um, uh, as as it does in in other people groups. Um, the other the other thing that folks have been particularly interested in, um, is uh, a conversation that, um, that is around say speculative fiction and, and what it offers. Um, I turned to speculative fiction because it creates a new world and in so doing creates a set of theories about how the world functions in real life. Um, and so my conversation is a little less about what speculative fiction does writ large. Um, although I think that there's the opportunity in speculative fiction to theorize on in some of these um, in some of the ways that I describe. Um, but I don't think that the, that the text was specific to Black speculative fiction. It's using Black speculative fiction because of the opportunity that's there. But I don't think, and I, this is in part um, what I reach for in the fourth conversation with the use of Matt Johnson, um, speculative fiction is a, is a foundational space from which Black folks write um because every i think i say this in the preface or the introduction every black writer is a kind of speculative fiction including me um so is every disabled writer so um i think i'm embracing the the promise of black speculative fiction what it has to offer for the creation of these new worlds um but I also take very seriously. I think what N.K. Jameson says in her, for um, masterclass. Um, I really wish they would change the name of the site and the company. But uh, what she says in her masterclass about the way the creation of a world will reflect its creator. Um, in in the speculative fiction context, she's not making a theological argument there, um, but. Um, I found in Black speculative fiction the attention to the variations of of, of differences in body-mind. So I mean, because the book was published in 2019, people don't really start reading academic books until six months after publication. They don't really start inviting you until one year after publication. And one year later, we were in the pandemic. Um, and so... Yeah, I haven't had many conversations with other scholars, and I think some of the um, the new work that is that is coming out doesn't uh, doesn't seem to be particularly engaged with mine. Um, and I suspect that that is in part because of the pandemic, um, and I also suspect that it is. Um, uh, maybe, uh, an active choice on the part of some folks to not necessarily be in conversation with, uh, black madness, double colon, mad blackness. Um, and I'm not sure why I think, I think, you know, you'd have to ask, uh, some of them, but I, I do, I don't see it being engaged just yet. And, you know, as with many academic texts, it, it may take a while. So I also may also be be like completely ignorant of where it's being cited so that is also (laughs) that is also a thing all
1: right so I wanted to ask about how you discuss throughout the book that black madness and mad blackness can disrupt proclivities for ocularity linear progression and temporality would you be able to talk just a little bit about what you're mentioning there and possibly give a little teaser for listeners of the theoretical work you're doing throughout this book?
0: Yeah, so Black Madness and Mad Blackness are are two different concepts. One is kind of a straightforward definitional, has a straightforward definitional quality to it. Um, What is both Black and and mad is Black Madness and Mad Blackness is, I think, the more theoretically oriented part of the pair. Um, and the madness takes on several valences several valences, uh angry, um, the kind of 90s slang for a lot and um and what one might call crazy on an ordinary day. and then blackness has all of its valences, um adjective, adverb, uh color, and noun and uh and so I think, um yeah those are those are the two ways that I kind of proceed in the book. The first conversation is more oriented toward black madness, and the latter two conversations are oriented toward mad blackness and the uh the final conversation tries to bring them all together um as does the the second cover. so yeah, that's how they that's how they proceed. I'm currently flipping through the book as though sort of a an initial flip-through will tell me anything, but my um my notes in here uh on my own work are also sort of question marks and um and small curiosities about where the book could have gone if it decided on a different set of markers. Mm-hmm.
1: And I've heard you talk in other settings about how the book is so short on purpose. And I think that's really interesting how you mentioned in your, some of your notes, you just leave it at question marks for how to kind of expand on the work that's there. So I think that's really awesome. And how that challenge is also kind of um, given to the reader as well. And there's this provocation to continue the work and expand upon what you've done and also consult with the works that you've expanded upon. So yeah, thank you for mentioning that. Um, Transitioning to your first conversation, which um, is kind of a, a replacement almost, or just like a turning away from the chapter style, which we talked about when we were discussing the structure of the book, one of the most provocative parts for me in this chapter was how you, in your analysis of fledgling, used desire and considered it as an ability itself. And some of your use of fledgling reveals how race and madness are integral in this. So could you expand on the notion of desire as an ability and how it takes shape in this conversation with Octavia Butler's fledgling?
0: Yeah, so in um, in fledgling, the ability to have desire, um, sort of the, the freedom for it to take shape um, as more than I think biological need. Um, and uh, well, we're, we're talking about ENA or vampires who require um, symbionts, human companions to live uh, off of for food and for. Comfort, so that desire is is one thing. But when you get into desire between the the Ina, um, the prospect of of mating and uh, they don't call it marriage, but it's a mating for life between male Ina and female Ina is on the table with uh, Shori and the Gordon family. Uh, Daniel Gordon uh, makes some overtures to her in ways that are um, sort of absurd and a little strange um, but a lot of that is because he is uh, a vampire and also a vampire existing in a matrilineal um, biological and social construct. So there are ways that he cannot act on his desire uh, but there are, uh, his knowledge of their social customs and their biology um, his intimate cerebral knowledge of that um, allows for his desire to function as a form of ability uh, because his desire is functioning through the vector of his knowledge and his um and his lack of amnesia. Uh, so that in those ways, uh, ability becomes um a, a desire becomes uh, the manifestation of ability. um and that the two are um, unmistakably intertwined in that that context.
1: Yeah, that is really interesting, and I appreciate you bringing that up through this um, conversation. And kind of following this thread, I noticed in your introduction that you mentioned how some of the work in this book follows queer studies disruption of the category of normal, and with queer studies being the discipline in which I do quite a bit of work. I think your book has some really interesting contributions to the realm of working around queerness and race and ability. Are there ways that you would like to see this book, Black Badness, double colon, mad black, and this book to inform those conversations around queerness?
0: Sure. So, um, uh, the two people who've endorsed the book, I think, speak to that a little bit. Um, Alison Kafer, who's the author of Feminist Period, quip, per, Queer Period, quip Crip Period, um, which is erroneously giving commas, I think, on the back of the book. Um, and Sharon Holland, Sharon Patricia Holland, the author of The Erotic Life of Racism. Um, I uh, actually consulted them while I was writing and... Um, Sharon was uh, was urging me to do a slender volume. Um, And, you know, my thinking is really heavily influenced by her, her sense of blackness and queerness as uh, co-constitutive, her understanding of how those um, come together to tell us something about how we need to think of death. and I think since death and disability are often so entwined in the public imagination, even if they aren't causal or correlated um, uh, necessarily, um, that her thinking has really, has really pushed me in that direction. So I, I think the book has a um, has a queer shadow. Um, that being said, um, I'm not a queer theorist um, and I'm not a queer studies scholar. Um, but I don't think you can do scholarship responsibly without um, working within the things that the text asks for. And Butler's work always asks for a queer analysis. I think Tana Nariv do and Nalo Hopkinson's work always ask for a queer analysis. And Matt Johnson's work asks for a queer analysis in the context of uh, understanding masculinity um, as legible, I used to use Mark Anthony Neal's words, and um also as non-normative um and i think um i didn't i didn't want blackness to be understood as the urtext of non-normativity nor disability to be understood as the urtext of non-normativity and to that way um in that way of thinking i think it's crucial or thought it was crucial when i was writing to ensure that uh where the text reveals itself to a reader as having queerness um and as being in conversation with um gender expansive um characters or people or ideas uh non-normative ideas about desire etc um non-heterosexual ideas about desire um that 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 the text rise to meet it as a, as a mark of critical and scholastic, I think, responsibility. Um, you know, in the, the kind of afterlife of the book, when I talk to Sharon now or Alison now, I think they've taken up queerness as part of their understandings of, um, of Blackness and Madness and disability studies in ways that I find really rather exceptional. So, I mean, I fall into the category of those that do it because it needs to be done, not necessarily a a scholar who does queer studies and does it well, um, because that's not my area of expertise. But I I do think, um, you know, for the folks who've taught me how to read uh, for queerness and how to understand it and underscore it as as a mark of of scholarship, then I, I hope I've done them proud. Um, because I, I think each of the texts asks for some some thought, some significant thought to how we understand what desire is and how it operates and how we question heteronormativity um, and cis cis-normativity and cisgender, cis-patriarchal, uh, white supremacy, like question that at every turn, so... Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. That's really interesting context. And I appreciate how um, your work deals with some of those complexities. So moving on to conversation three, I'm going to skip conversation two real quick. Um, Conversation three is titled Abandoning the Human? Uh, You began by noting that Black Studies has contested the validity of human as a concept, but Disability Studies on the other hand shows the variation of human experience and that the experience of disability is, quote, enfolded in the human, unquote. Would you be able to share about the strategies of engaging the human and how your work challenges the limits or even just the uh, um, standard approaches of both of these strategies?
0: Yeah, so initially that part wasn't in the book. Um, and it sort of vestiges in the intro and preface um, are this tracing of the category of madness. Um, I remember giving a talk at uh, BC and someone asked me, well, how are you defining madness? And it was an interesting question, not because I thought it was, not because I thought the answer was obvious, but because I felt like I had to work to ensure that I wasn't defining madness as an inherently white um, category, um, that Black people don't get to be crazy, right? Um, There are different consequences when we when we are, um, but the idea that it just doesn't exist um p- kind of perturbed me. Well perturbed frustrated, angered, uh, made me mad, right? Um and so in conversation three, when I talk about kind of abandoning the human as a concept, some of it comes out of that frustration, the fact that there are differing consequences for um what I would understand to be very natural human emotions, reactions, etc., and then also variances within humanity. But what I noticed was that even as disability studies in some places holds on to um, the category of human, it also holds on to white supremacy. And so what I began to wonder was whether the category of the human invested as it is with so much critical weight, um, whether it's functioning as a default white category as so many other categories are. And so part of what I tried to do was kind of pull, pull those threads together. What is disability studies doing? What is blackness doing as part of the cartography of the project? And um, to kind of think through the um, what Tana Nariva is doing in the African Immortal series because what she does is question whether humanity, whether uh procreation needs to be our future. Um, and I don't think she does it in an afro pessimist way because that's a that's a different bag, I think, in um, altogether but i think she's questioning it because she finds so much utility in it and i think the way that the the series ends with um you know a kind of supernatural birth control and um these two kind of non-human beings um playing around inside their minds suggests to me that the category will continue to have critical purchase um, and so I end up at a place at the end of the third conversation that's similar to places that Hortense, Billers, or Trudy, or Harris have ended up in their scholarship, like the, the story that we're telling um, has so much, people have invested in it so much that it's going to be a very diff- very difficult proposition to change that story um, and the work of Trudier Harris is that I'm thinking of is uh, Saints, Saviors, and Sinners, Saviors and Saints or Saviors, Sinners and Saints, something like that. Um uh, about the strong black woman archetype, and then also um Cortense Biller's essays. Um, some of them she's I think mama's baby papa's maybe she ends up at the same place where she starts. Um so you know, some conversations are like that.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting to hear about. So I appreciate you going into detail on that. So we mentioned earlier that this book doesn't necessarily have a conclusion in itself, but towards the end, if you will, you say attempts to, quote, discipline mad black madness and mad blackness, unquote, in a linear progressive narrative has the appearance of proposing a more just world. And while this is going on, you say it, quote, requires willful incursions into an ideological territory that demands anti-Blackness and ableism as its governing principles, unquote, which is, (laughs) it's on page 112. Okay. So these quotes... And parts of this, like, couple pages where you wrap up the book and also going back to the introduction, it's really been very provocative for me to try to consider all that's going on in this text and um, where it can you know, the horizons in which you're working with. So would you be able to unpack these statements a little bit and how you're challenging us to think about black madness, mad blackness, race, and disability, kind of how you're um, wrapping up this book and the next steps that readers um, can take in this scholarship because you have included a ton of footnotes and citations with really, really provocative works that can help us to continue engaging in this scholarship. But um, yeah, I've been super fascinated with just how you have worked around wrapping up the book. So I don't know if you would be willing to speak to that a little bit and how we can think about Mad Blackness and Black Madness in ways that don't demand anti-Blackness and ableism as governing principles.
0: Yeah, so um, linear progressive narratives, the narratives and the stories that we've been taught to tell, stories with a beginning, a middle and an end, usually have this kind of teleological impulse where we are pushing people and things to wrap up neatly and and nicely. Uh, We want closure (laughs) uh, in relationships, right? Ghosting is really unsatisfying. You always uh in say, and it's uh we're recording this in, in November before the before the um traditional holidays, right? So those those movies are coming out, right? It's gonna be a wonderful lifetime and the Hallmark Channel and all of that. Oh yes. <laughs> so in each of those, there's uh, there's usually a rom com with someone who escapes one relationship, fun- falls into a depression, finds himself in the next one, and while they're at the on the cusp of happiness in their second relationship, the old relationship comes back to haunt them, and they somehow get closure. That kind of narrative: the beginning, and the middle, and the end. The ability to always wrap things up. Um, that narrative is predicated as are many of those shows on a paradigm of whiteness on a paradigm of white supremacy and on a paradigm of of ability even the ones that include black characters even the ones that include latinx characters and um and asian characters um and multiracial characters and disabled characters or right? i i tried renting one with a wheelchair user and it was the same I had to turn it off. Um, but I, I think that press, that ideological press for a certain kind of ending, asks us to subscribe to a world where resources, including attention and love are distributed equitably. And according to who who someone is and what they deserve. Um, it forces us to adhere to a set of principles that um, allow for a certain physical reciprocity with regard to care. Um, there's always a sort of Herculean effort um, in these in these narratives. Um, and now I'm not just talking about the Hallmark or Lifetime ones, but a lot of the narratives we tell ourselves um, about the ability of people to care for one another this sort of physical ability to care for one another, to carry someone across a threshold, to serve someone when they're sick, right? All of those sorts of things. Um, And it it sort of assumes that the state doesn't interfere in your life. And it assumes that um, when the state intervenes, it is to assist and it's a kind of benevolent state. Uh, It assumes that there are no insurrections in the capital, no war, uh, tearing up parts of Ukraine and Ethiopia and India, no infrastructure problems, no stampedes, right? It assumes that all of those things are, are not part of the world in which we live because there has to be a happy ending. And because on the whole, black folks and disabled folks, have heroic victories or have to fight for a happy ending that includes them and that loves them and that cares about them um i don't think those narratives have much worth now i still watch them all right so if you if you check out my i guess instagram since i'm not going to be on twitter much anymore Um, but if you check out my social media, you may see me sort of crowing about how dare there be this person with that person, or, you know, I I get into it. That doesn't kind of, you know, in the words of Beyonce, it won't, this won't break my soul, but I also have to suspend some degree of disbelief. Um, and so I think if we're going to tell better stories, we have to resist the urge to conclude them. Um, or even create them with these with these underlying premises, um, and telling the better story, imagining the better story, when it is fundamentally shaped by these um, historically marginalized identities or multiply marginalized identities, and that experience, that intersectional experience, then the stories, quite frankly, get better, um, but they also have more believable endings some of which are conclusions some of which are are endings um yeah so i you know at first this was sort of a narrative trick right i don't want to write a conclusion i'm done thinking about this book how do i get out of this but the more i tried to press myself into a conclusion the more i realized there there really wasn't one that's possible and the more I started reading books like Christina Sharpe's In the Wake or um, Ida Levy-Hussein's uh, book um, or Alison Caper's book, um, they, they they weren't really conclusions that were wrapping things up. They always ventured for the conclusion that was like, okay, here's what else you have to do. Um, and so- Taking their their cue, I just decided to put a little Sagittarian extra ENTJ extraness on it, and so there's there's the there's what you have.
1: <laughs> nice. Well, even though it disrupts this like desire for closure as you were talking about before, I think that's also very useful in how you're using this book and the theories that you're putting forth. So. Um, mm-hmm. I appreciate that, even though it's led me to even go back and read other parts and try to, um, you know, construct more of what I'm trying to work through in the book and then also consult other works that you're citing and trying to work through some of that. So thank you for going over that Um, well, Dr. Pickens. Thank you so much for your time, and I'm glad that we've been able to have this discussion today. Um, To reference one thing that I heard you talk about in another setting, you said that this book is meant to make us think about how we're thinking when we think about Blackness and Madness. And I think that you've definitely done this in this book and also in this conversation, even with the way that you've challenged some of the questions and made us think about ways a little bit differently and in different frames. So I appreciate that. And now that we've spent a lot of time talking about your past work, I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit more or a little bit about what the future work holds for you.
0: Sure. So I think, you know, one last thing I'll say about the book is please read the footnotes please, please, please read the footnotes. There's jokes in there. There's a little shade in there. There's, there's a lot of, um, you actually get to see how my mind works in the footnotes. Like that certainly the book does that, but the footnotes are where I start to play around. Um, uh, so I w I wouldn't be surprised if people really feel like they know me once they finish the book, if they've read the footnotes. And so, yeah, I definitely would say do that. Um,
1: yes, it is a (laughs) <laughs> Pleasure to read those. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Um, I uh, right now I'm working on uh, two major projects. Um, one is a collection of poetry, a collection of my own poetry. Um, and the, the other is that I now own a business. I am a developmental editor and line editor uh, for academic and creative work, both fiction and nonfiction. Um, And I'm finding both of those quite fulfilling. I think, you know, they speak to the things that I have consistently had my hands in um, while working on some of the other, like the the first two monographs and the other three edited collections. Um, I, uh, I've now just moved those kind of center stage um, and with the business rather than um, kind of just doing people favors. I'm, I'm actually asking for Compensation for my labor, so that that's fun as well. Um, I think in in terms of future projects, um, I'm not sure what that holds um, in terms of academic nonfiction. Um, I think the the impulse that I have is to say we'll see, uh, we'll see what the what the academic publications look like now. Um, but I'm also at a point in my career where I quite frankly don't have to write another academic book I can choose to write differently and I may choose to take advantage of that I may not I you know I don't know Um, there's a certain restlessness I have around um, my intelligence and my intellectual curiosity and you know it may or may not lead me back here so
1: nice well I'm excited to see what the future holds for you. And also congratulations on these new ventures. Sounds like really good work that you're enjoying. So, and plus getting compensated for the work that you're already doing (laughs) is also important. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate talking with you. Thank you.